0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Before we get started, um, I was sharing that I'm sitting there listening to the Dean's sermon, and... I'm, I was amazed because that is today's lesson. So this is kind of going to be like a repeat of Andrew's message. And um, unbeknownst to him, he and this woman have a lot in common. Um, but I'm just um, amazed at how God ordained and orchestrated everything together. So maybe God has something to say to us um, today since this is going to hit on um, the big themes that Andrew spoke about. Um, so I'm excited to share about these four women of the Reformation. Um, and I have a helper here with me with my German pronunciation. I'm not a scholar in this area, so please forgive me for my mistakes, um, especially with pronunciation. Um, and also, uh, just a couple of things. Um, I have a lot of material, so I might run through this. Hopefully, we'll get um, get it all and have time for questions. Um, and please forgive me. I'm working from a manuscript so that I don't um, miss any of the... Um, points and I can stay on track. Um, and I brought some books, so if you're interested in this topic, um, there are some books that you can um, look at um, later. Um, if you're interested, one book in particular I'm going to be um, using a lot today. It's really what I've used for, for this lesson. Um, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your servant, Argula. And I thank you that we um, can still learn from her and that you are using her. Um, I pray that through Argula we are able to see Jesus today. Um, Be with your teacher, for I am weak, um, but may my weakness be an opportunity for your strength and for your glory, and may your Holy Spirit uh, minister and speak to us um, even now. In your name, amen. Okay, so September 20th, and there's handouts too if y'all need them. Um, September 20th, 1523, is a date that I have not seen on any Reformation timeline. And I'm going to argue that it should be on all Reformation timelines. Um, If it were up to the theologians at this university, Ingolstadt, um, that date and the woman behind the letter that um, they received would be lost to obscurity. But thanks be to God, um, she is not lost and neither are her letters. Um, so who was Argula, and um, what's important about this date? Argula von was born into Bavarian nobility, probably in 1492. So her dad's a baron, answerable only to the emperor. Um, she's born in a castle, has lots of, they have lots of money. They're pri- they prize education and religion. And her dad, at the age of ten, at her age of. She was 10, not her dad, but her dad, when she was 10, gives her a Coburger Bible. Now, this is one of the um, early translations of the Bible into German. It's beautiful. It's expensive. It has all of those art pieces of artwork in the Bible, and he wants her to read it, but she doesn't read it. And she says not because she was unable to read or not because she wasn't interested, but because the Franciscan advisors to her family told her to, that to read the Bible would be to lead her astray. Ironically, it is them who led her astray and undoubtedly one of her biggest regrets that she didn't read the Bible when she was 10. Um, Her life was on the fast track for nobility and luxury. So as um, a young teenager, she served on the court in Munich as a lady-in-waiting, but tragedy soon struck. Her parents died um, from a plague of 1509, and she was orphaned, and then her uncle, who became her guardian, was beheaded in 1516. So, by the time she married Friedrich von Grumbach, um, she was no longer a young, um, wealthy woman. Uh, She joined him in a town called Dietfert, where Friedrich served as its administrator. And so, I'm going to pause here, and we're going to situate her in history. I couldn't find really good maps on Google Images, so I apologize. But this is... This area is, is it Bavaria or Bavaria? Vittenberg. Bavaria. I'm saying that right. And up here is Wittenberg where Luther was. And really the, the home of the Reformation. Um, so I'm going to show you this other map I found on Pinterest. Ignore this green box. But down here is Ingolstadt. And Dietfurt was south of it, not very far. And then we're going to talk about this town, Nuremberg. And then again, you can see Wittenberg up here. So it kind of situates you. Um, she, and then here's Munich, where she served as a lady-in-waiting. Um, historically, a quick timeline, 1517, Luther nails the 95 Theses to the castle church door. Um, 1519, he debates um, John Eck over Sola Scriptura. Then in 1520, Luther publishes his, uh, three monumental, his first three monumental works. And then 1521 is the Diet of Worms, where Luther appears before Um, The emperor, to defend himself against um, charges of heresy, he refuses to recant, and the pope excommunicates him. Um, Leaving that diet, he um, goes into hiding um, at the Wurtburg Castle, um, thanks to Frederick the Wise. And it is there that he translates the New Testament into German, which is published in 1522. So the Reformation is young. This is within a span of five years. Um, So... How um, did Argula come into um, the reforming ideas? We aren't sure um, when she was first exposed to the reforming ideas, but by the time she wrote her letter in 1523, she has read the Bible, she's read Luther's New Testament translation, and she's read other works by Luther. Um, Also remarkable about Argula is her many contacts with reformers. So she stayed in constant contact with Luther and Philip Melanchthon, and Reformer Andreas Osiander in Nuremberg. She was um, well-connected to Reformers. Um, She was connected to Spalatin, the court chaplain to Frederick the Wise. Um, She also kept herself and others well-informed of news relating to the Reformation, even sending word to Luther in 1522 about new persecutions in the Netherlands. So, all of these factors, the Word of God read and memorized, uh, the reading of Reformation works and thereby reading Scripture in light of them, uh, the many correspondence with reformers, staying informed of Reformation happenings, it culminated to a tipping point in 1523 when a young man by the name of Ars- oh, how, what's his name? Arceus, Arceus, Ziehofer, was forced to recant his reforming views or either die at the stake. So the University of Ingolstadt, remember it's in the south, Wittenberg is in the north, it was not a safe place for those who agreed with Luther. In 1520, one of its professors, George Howard, insisted that the university forcibly put an end to reforming ideas and anyone who um, uh, promulgated it. Um, then there was John Eck. Remember Eck from our timeline? He's Martin Luther's main opponent. Now he is the archenemy. Of the Reformation. He is the Martin Luther of the Catholics. Um, he's also the pro-chancellor of the University of Ingolstadt and he was the one responsible for making the university a bulwark for the traditional Catholic faith. Then in March 1522, so that's the year that Luther's New Testament translation came out, the court in Munich issued a mandate against the receiving and um, Uh, spreading of Luther's teachings which provided the perfect artillery for people like and Eck to take decisive action. So y'all following? Sorry I'm going fast through history here. So Seehoffer, Seehoffer, was an 18 year old student who came to the university after spending time in Wittenberg. So like any enthusiastic student who hears new teachings, they're excited, He went to lectures given by Luther and Melanchthon, and he comes to the university and has Reformation books, Luther's books, in his, in his, um, in his backpack, (coughs) um, his Middle Ages backpack, and comes to the university, and the university gets wind of it, and, um, threatens them in Christmas of 1522 to stop it. Stop meeting, stop talking about, um, Luther's works. Um, and then in 1523, after a house, or, uh, house search that came up with incriminating evidence, Seehofer, Seehofer was arrested. So they told him, you can recant and be confined to a monastery or you can die. Um, and they provided 17 summaries of his errors. And I wish we had time to go through his errors. Um, they're mostly classic Reformation teachings. So for instance, one of his heresies that he would um, die over was that faith alone is sufficient for our justification. Faith alone is sufficient for our justification. That was one of the heresies. Student protests broke out, which resulted in more arrest, and on September 7th, 1523, a tearful Zeehofer under pressure denied all of Luther's teachings. So for Argula, our heroine, um, she, you know, who had been keeping up with the persecutions, this hit close to home, practically in her backyard, and she felt compelled by the Lord to do something. So she takes her four young children with her. Um, think of it—you know, 16th century. She takes her four children and she goes up to Nuremberg to visit with the reformer Osiander. Um, we have no recording of their visit or their conversations, but we know that he served as her advisor, um, most likely encouraging her to write a letter, and it also wouldn't be that surprising if their conversation shaped the content of her letters um as the day that she arrived home from her visit with osiander um she penned this letter on september 20th there's our date september 20th to the heads of the university of Ingolstadt, which included Eck. i mean she either had to be naive or bold she took on the main um opponent of the reformation you know um it's pretty incredible. Uh, she published her letter. So she wrote her letter um, with the intent of publishing it. Now, remember, the printing press is still fairly new, um, and she prints it as a pamphlet. And it goes through 14 editions in less than two months. It was a Middle Ages bestseller. Um, it's just incredible how many editions it went through. So, we're going to discuss major themes of this letter in a minute. Um, but then on the same day, she also sent a letter to Duke Wilhelm, who was a childhood friend, defending her actions because she knew that he would soon hear about it. So how did people respond to her letter? Well, let's talk about these guys. They didn't really like it that a woman took them on. Um, so you're going to have to pardon some of my language. But I want you to feel the fury that they had by her attack on them. They wanted the, quote, silly bag tamed and did not want the, quote, female devil to go unpunished. They ridiculed her, went on a smear campaign, and Professor Howard called her a, quote, shameless whore, arrogant devil, heretical bee, and wretched and pathetic daughter of Eve during a sermon on December 8th. Can you imagine hearing that from the pulpit? Argula's husband lost his post at Deepfurt, and the family was forced to leave. Um, And she's pretty fortunate that she didn't have her fingers cut off, which is what they recommended her husband do, and many other things. Um, but Archela was perhaps one of the first people of the Middle Ages, and most certainly the first Reformation woman, and probably the first woman ever, to use the novelty of pamphleteering. It is estimated that 29,000 of her pamphlets were distributed on the eve of the Peasants' War in 1524, 29,000 of her pamphlets. But perhaps equally astonishing is her role as a lobbyist. Not long after her family was forced to leave, she left behind an angry husband, and I guess her children, I don't know where they were, and she traveled to her people, the princes, the nobility of the land, to persuade them to support the Reformation. So after she gets home, she pins two more letters. Um, one to Frederick the Weiss, who had Luther, um, and, and continued to urge them to support the Reformation. Um, So she's probably the first woman lobbyist of the Reformation. Um, She wrote seven letters for publication within one year. So her public writing ministry, I guess we could say, only lasted one year. Um, But she continued writing privately to reformers. Um, In fact, there's a letter to Luther in which she urges him to marry, take a wife, and he follows her advice within six months. So she was pretty influential. Um, And Luther, in another letter, uh, signaled her out as a special instrument for Christ's work, distinguished for her knowledge of God's word, as well as for her courage. So her last published work um, was a major poem, and this is really cool to me, in response to the only response she got. uh, Let me just stop here. Of all of her seven public letters, not one person that she wrote responded to her. Not one. She wasn't worth the dignity of responding to who needs to respond to this silly devilish woman so she got no response except for an anonymous letter written by an ingleshot student in the form of slam poetry now this is the first instance i can find of slam poetry of the reformation so think of that as slam poetry (laughs) contest of the reformation i think that would be a fun phd dissertation um so um this um student writes her and it's crude, it's evil, he tries to destroy her character um, morale. And I'm just gonna read a couple of um, <laughs> lines from it so you can kind of get the idea. Frau Argel, Argy Bargy's your name, argumentative, no hint of shame, reckless of womanly constraint, brass-necked without restraint. You want to teach your lords and princes a brand new faith and to cap this you even have the audacity to take on an entire university. Are you on heat, perhaps, for this 18-year-old chap? Let this pupil calm you down, for if for this topic again you head, like all your heretic friends, you're dead." Um, Argula's response um, was also a poem. It was her first attempt at poetry, and if the two had been judged on their poetry, he would have won. I mean, it was just well-crafted, even though the message was terrible. Hers was way too long, um, 556 lines. <laughs> and so she kind of reminds me of myself being long-winded. Um, and she had not yet mastered the craft. However, I think history shows Argula to come out on top. Um, because instead of playing to his slanderous game, she took the high road. And she quotes scripture and proclaims Christ. And she says, For Christ gives me assurance clear, I never need have any fear. For even as summoned straight away, his father tells us what to say. He puts his spirit in our mouths and speaks for us in such an hour. You're not the ones who have to speak. This promise makes my heart to leap. So it's beautiful, beautiful lines. Um, so that was her last work. Um, and as I as already said, she finished writing in 1524. She then concentrated on helping the educa- uh, her children with their education. Um, there's also mention of her preaching in Dietfert, um, but more research needs to be done. Um, and then in June 1530, she traveled to the Diet of Augsburg um, where she attempted to mediate between a controversy over the Eucharist, um, bringing together two sides, um, which is really incredible. And in fact, someone um, wrote a letter to Luther reporting on the work that Argula did at that diet. Um, but this was her last major involvement in the Reformation. For her part, she did what she could to defend God's word and bring it to her place in the world. Um, She saw herself as part of a movement of women and was educated in one of the earliest models of a lay academy. But one of the saddest lines in this book um, that I've mentioned um, by Matheson is this. He says, on the whole, Argula's name was forgotten. So today we're not going to forget her name. We're remembering her and um, thanking God for her. Um, So why should we study Argula and what does she have to say? And this is where we're going to look at your handout. And at the top... I have kind of a key of where the, these are the names of the letters that she sent. So we're gonna look at a couple of themes um, of her letters. The first and most significant theme of Argula's letter is the primacy of God's word. Argula's first letter to the university is not a defense of Seehofer, Seehofer per se, but primarily defense of God's word. She perceptively understands that these persecutions are reflective of a battle of God's word. There are those who are for God's word, like Luther and Melanchthon, and those who oppose it. So that first quote, how in God's name can you and your university expect to prevail when you deploy such foolish violence against the word of God? So this is not necessarily against Zehofer, but against the word of God. When you force someone to hold the Holy Gospel in their hands for the very purpose of denying it, as you did in the case of Zehofer. End of quote. Her method is to allow scripture to defend itself. She begins the letter to the university, diving into the sacred text, um, quoting John 12. And then what follows in the letter is made up of her quoting, exegeting, and applying scripture, um, tying it all together at the end with a benediction. God's word is so central to Argula that she gives 70 scripture references in this one letter to the university. So this, um, if you heard me say, this is going to, hint at Andrew's sermon today um, I like what Peter Matheson has to say about her quote she walks around the script scriptural text as if in her garden her treasure chamber I find this text she often says I have it I see it she is at home in scripture isn't that cool I would love that to be said of me she's at home in scripture she walks around scripture as if she's in her garden her treasure chamber I think it's beautiful Um, Argula puts her opponents to shame by her unwavering confidence and knowledge of Scripture. So now we're going to go to some more quotes. Listen to her boldness as she fights for sola scriptura. Quote, But where the word of God is concerned, neither Pope, Emperor, nor Princes, as Acts 4 and 5 make so clear, have any jurisdiction. Quote, I have no doubt about it. God will surely preserve his holy and blessed word as he has hitherto declared, has done in the Old and New Testament, still does, and will continue to do, end of quote. Quote, no one has a right to exercise sovereignty over the word of God. Yes, no human being, whoever he be, can rule over it. For the word of God alone, without which nothing was made, should and must rule, end of quote. Quote, if one could enforce faith, why weren't all unbelievers given instructions to believe long ago? The difficulty is that it is the word of God which has to teach us, not flesh and blood, end of quote. So unlike Zeehofer, who denied the reformational teachings, Argula insists that she could not deny them, for it would be to deny God's very word. That next quote. For my part, I have to confess in the name of God and by my soul's salvation that if I were to deny Luther and Melanchthon's writing, I would be denying God and his word, which, that should be which, not why, which may God forfend forever. Amen. And I put in parentheses, prevent. I think what she's saying is, may God prevent this from ever happening. And even if Luther were himself to revoke his teachings, that would not worry me, she said. I do not build on his, mind or any person's understanding, but on the true rock, Christ himself, which the builders have rejected. Doesn't that go so well with the sermon today? Um, the preacher is to point us to the word of God. So she's saying, I, I don't build my trust and my faith on Luther and Melanchthon, but their teachings drive me to the word of God. So it just goes so well. In her letter to her cousin, Adam von Tering, Count uh, Palatine's administrator in Nuremberg, she criticizes the authorities for not reading or knowing their Bibles, um, which I think this is a good challenge for us today. She says, quote, To say that God has spoken means no more to them than if some fool or some deformed person had spoken. All this is because they are as well informed about the Bible as a cow is about chess. While it certainly isn't my task to deal with their stock retort, I believe what my parents believe, and we still hear, hear that today, I believe what my parents believe, that is not the end of the matter. For all Christians have a responsibility to know the word of God, as um, our pastor said today. Paul says that faith comes from hearing. And I'm going to skip over those next two quotes for time. You can read on your own. Argyla writes her letters with authority, not because she has any authority on her own, but because she believes in the authoritative supremacy of God's word for which she stands behind and defends. She thus ends her letter to the university by asserting this authority in God's word. And this is one of my favorite quotes. What I have written to you is no woman's chit chat, but the word of God. A second theme that flows out of her reading of Scripture, and this just again goes with the sermon, is that she reads the current events apocalyptically. These are the last days that she is living in. There is an eschatological urgency in her letters. She quotes freely from the prophets and confidently applies judgment prophecies to the university leaders, the state, the Pope, and even the Catholic Church, with the hope that they will repent. She says some pretty strong words um, about the Pope and the Catholic Church. Um, So she says, applying Jeremiah one, the pot burns and truly you and your university will never extinguish it. And neither the Pope with his decretals nor Aristotle, who has never been a Christian, nor you yourselves can manage it. You may imagine that you can defy God, cast down his prophets and apostles from heaven and banish them from the world. This shall not happen. End of quote. Another quote, how are the lawmakers and their representatives to endure if they invent laws out of their own heads and not from the counsel and word of God? In my view, the Lord is referring to them in Matthew 15. Oh, you hypocrites, you have made the command of God vain because of your impositions. And then she says, I cry out with the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 22. Earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Then we see this apocalyptic urgency in other letters. Another one is is the letter to the people of Regensburg. I'm not going to read that first long one. You can read it on your own, but I'm going to go down to the next one. Oh, my dear brothers, be mindful that God has appointed you to be watchers and overseers. Be conscious that the souls entrusted to you have been bought, not with silver or with gold, but with the costly rose-red blood of the Lord Jesus. It is time to arise from sleep and to fix our eyes on the Lord, for our salvation is closer than we believed. goes so well again with the sermon today. So let us fight chivalrously against the enemies of God, and he will slay them with the breath of his mouth. The word of God must be our weapon. And last, it is time for the very stones to cry out in our midst. Luke 19. Argula also sees her role role within an eschatological framework. From the very beginning of her letter, she defends her speaking out while congruently defending God's word. She is like a prophetess who comes proclaiming the word of the Lord, and she had to do this Think of the context, middle ages, where women didn't have a voice. This was, what she was doing was so unheard of, um, so unique. And so she's having to defend herself speaking as much as she is having to defend the Word of God because she wants them to hear the Word of God spoken through her. So she doesn't want who she is to be a stumbling block. Um, the foundational reason for Argula speaking out is Matthew ten thirty two, which basically says, "Everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven. Everyone who denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven." This verse has so captured her heart and conscience that she is compelled. She takes this verse literally that I have to confess God um, before these men because my Father is going. I want him to um, confess me before my Father. This is her life verse, we could say. Um, She begins her letter to the university quoting Matthew 10.32 and Luke 9.26, which provides a framework for justifying her outspoken role. So that next quote, or that first one under that heading, words like these coming from the very mouth of God are always before my eyes, talking about that verse. For they exclude neither woman nor man, and this is why I'm compelled as a Christian to write to you. Do you all have that quote on there? Yep. Okay. Um, so she is compelled as a Christian, not as a woman, not as a lay person, but as a Christian. She believes the word of God has leveled the ground for women. Her words resonate Colossians three twenty-eight. There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor woman, um, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Um, she writes to them. Uh, employing this reality, this in-Christ reality, where men and women stand shoulder to shoulder as children of God and recipients of his word. They are to correct and reprove one another. By using the in-Christ reality, she's asking for a proper hearing. So, the next quote. This is to the Council of Ingolstadt. She says, Therefore, to be a Christian means to resist as best we can those who would condemn the word of God. Not with weapons, though, but rather with the word of God. What doctor of theology could be so learned that his vow is worth more than mine? The spirit of God is promised to me as much as it is to him. As God says in Joel 2, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. This theme appears again in her letter to the people of Regensburg. She says, and I'm just going to quote bits of this, That is why, my dear brothers, I am constrained to write to you as a member of Christ. It is not fair that I should be described as the least of all because of the weakness of my understanding. For God's sake, I beg you not to take offense at what this poor, weak, feminine creature is saying to you. I know very well that by worldly conventions I cannot begin to be ranked alongside you. God, however, loves those who are despised, and whatever others do, I'm not going to bury my own talent. In her letter to Duke Wilhelm, she basically says... um, I will confess him, even if it costs me my own life. Silence is not a viable option for Argula. The word of God has so compelled her that to not speak would be to sin against God. Um, Midway through her letter, she describes a situation where she did remain silent, and she says, I was heavy of heart um, because of what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. But now, she says, I cannot see any man who is up to it who is either willing or able to speak. These words are indicative of an emergency situation. If there is no good man to defend God's word, then she believes scripture makes a provision for her. For Argula, these matters of, are of life and death importance. This is a matter of life and death. Um, and then I'm not going to read the last three quotes. You could read that on, on your own. So to conclude, I'd like to raise two ways that we can retrieve Argula for today. First, I believe. And I'm going to come out bold and strong, like Argula, come out bold. I believe we need another Reformation today. 500 years later, in mainline Protestantism, the gospel is buried in the crypts with its bishops, its deans, and its priests. The Reformation, in the denominations where it first began, is dead or is dying. And that breaks my heart. Um, Andrew... um, I probably should call him Dean Pearson, but um, he posted on Facebook an article that um, talked about the percentage change in membership in the three most mainline um, denominations from 2000 to 2010. The Episcopal Church lost 15.7 percent of its membership. The Evangelical Lutheran Church in America lost 18.2 percent, and the Presbyterian Church USA lost 21.9 percent. Those numbers are astonishing. It is not their method. Just as he said this morning, I'm going to reiterate what our pastor said. It is their message that is the cause for this decay. They are not preaching Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, and buried, raised again on the third day for our sins. They're preaching something that is not good news. And I'll give you two examples. Um, We were in D.C. this summer. We went to the beautiful uh, cathedral in D.C. And um, we're standing there, and someone's giving a tour And I just overhear him say, he's pointing to this art about when Jesus comes back again. And he says, now, I believe that when Jesus comes back, he will take everyone, no matter what they believe, into heaven. To which I just, my immediate response was like, ah! And it just kind of echoed throughout the cathedral. But it just shocked me that he is leading these people astray. Um, There's no teaching of sin. Therefore, that he can... Forgiveness. (laughs) Forgiveness. <laughs> if there's no mention of sin, there's no mention of forgiveness. There's no mention of faith in Jesus Christ. Um, another example was when we lived in Cambridge, England, a couple of years ago. Um, the first Sunday there, we wanted to go to the, our parish church that was in right by our house where we were renting and we could see the steeple from the window. We could hear the bells tolling on Sunday morning calling us to worship and we get there and there's maybe 12 people there and that should have been a sign. It was a beautiful service but then the um, priest got up, preached a sermon on the wheat and tares. I think that, that passage was read last week in church. The wheat and tares, the parable. And she said that the tares is what's inside all of us. And God will take all of the tears out, out of all of us, and we will all be brought um, to salvation. I, I wish that were true, um, but there was no message of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. We need the, a reformation. Argula's letter to the university, fraught with its life and death urgency, should incite in us the same kind of urgency for today. She compels us to speak and take action on behalf of the gospel where lives are at stake. Her words wake us up from a sleep of complacency and pull back the drapes so that we can see there's a war raging on outside. And we as Christians are called to join in because people are dying without the good news of Jesus Christ. We need Argula's boldness and unwavering belief in the power of scripture. And we need to follow her example in confronting false teachers when necessary. Second, in Argula, we are reminded of God's great reversal of worldly statuses. And I love this. In scripture, Argula finds a God who chooses and anoints the last born, the least, the weakest. She prophetically understood, understands her role as a great reversal. She's the unschooled, self-taught, degreeless woman who is wise. And it's the powerful and learned men here who are the fools. Matheson says, especially in these last days, when God's spirit is being lavishly poured out upon all flesh, what, what might normally be seen as women's chit-chat becomes the vehicle of the very word of God. All normal categories have been turned upside down. Therefore, Argulus serves as a reminder to us that God can take the least likely person and use him or her for his glory. That should give us great encouragement, I think. God has used the mouths of murderers, concubines, foreigners, slaves, men, women, youth, children, and even a donkey to proclaim the wor- his word in salvation history. Jesus tells the Pharisees, like Argula reminds us, that if his disciples keep quiet, then the stones will cry out. So God will use whomever and whatever he will to make sure people hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you and I are not out of his reach to use. Um, so I'm gonna, that leaves us just a couple minutes for questions. Do y'all have anything that you want to ask or mention? How does she guys? Is she, she You know, I don't remember. <clears throat> I want to say that... I could be wrong about this, but I want to say that um, the last bit of her life is kind of uh, unknown. Mm. But I'd have to go back and read. That's a good question. Yeah. Um, first of all, thank you very much oh, yeah. for doing This, this was great. My, my curiosity is, is what piqued your interest, I mean how did you even find out about her? She's so obscure. Yeah. How did you, I mean I know the Lord, you were speaking today to speak to us, Yeah. your teaching was about getting back to the gospel, which was the same thing, so thanks be to God. But how did you just teach on that? I mean I think it was great. I saw it, I was like, this is be cool. I had to throw in Slam Poets to get you to come here, you know. But, uh, yeah, it's so interesting. Um, I edit our, uh, I work at Beeson Divinity School, as you know, and I am the editor of our magazine and our magazine this year. And I meant to bring some with me, but I'll bring them next week, um, was on the reformation and our Dean Timothy George is a reformation <coughs> scholar. And, um, I w- put all the content of the magazine together. and He said, there's no women in this magazine. And I thought to myself, well, there's not really any women in the Reformation," and. He said there are women of the Reformation, and he, the first person he mentioned was Argula, who I mistakenly called Arugula <laughs> to him later, and um, was a little bit embarrassed. But uh, he told me about her, and I read it for the read on her a little bit for the magazine, and then my interest was, you know, I was just yeah, sold. This so she this knows. book on Matheson that Matheson edited is wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. He's also written another book on her that I think you can find, um, online. And then this book, which I'll use for the next, and I'm so young in my, in my reading and learning. So I really feel like I'm just, int- I'm just telling you what other people have said <laughs> and introducing you to the women. But this one is, um, by Roland Bainton, Women of the Reformation. And that also has something on her as well. So, yeah, I hope y'all, you know, will read more of her. Yeah. Say one thing as well. The, you know, the bellwether that you sound for the new Reformation is so very important because um, I go to Germany once or twice a year, and Osiander, who preached in St. Lorenz Church mm. in Nuremberg, and met with her. I went to Ash Sunday or Ash Wednesday service, mm. and there were ten people there in this glorious cathedral laid in 1210 mm. that would house 2,000 people. Hmm. And they say that, you know, we're fifty to sixty years behind Europe in certain things. And that is a it's a dead place. We're the birthplace of the Reformation and the Word of God was spread to the world, you know, so it became, you know, where people couldn't read the Bible and now they could read the Bible, it's dead again. It's dead again. And that should be frightening, but you know, we have comfort that God will give provision mm-hmm. that the word will get out. thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. Thank y'all. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. (laughs) You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.